live in a world that's mostly filled with bad news, right? When I get up in the morning, first thing, I do at least two of three different things. And those different things are, I always pray. Every morning I pray. Most of the time I check the news, either on my computer, on the apps on my smartphone. Got all these special apps that are so smart and they just bring up all the, the bad headlines right off the bat. And, and quite often I listen to Christian music. On Sunday morning, I do not check the news, <laughs> you know, whether it's Fox News, CNN, or NBC, because it's almost all bad news. It's divisive news, and that's not what Sundays are all about. Plus, I'm in spiritual preparation for, for Sunday morning. and So on Sunday mornings, I pray and, and listen to Christian music until Jan opens the curtains and it cuts off the Internet, <laughs> and then I have to go make it right again. But we live in a world where most of the news is bad. A quick look at any of the news broadcasts or any news app will reveal to us that the news in our world is not only bad, but it seems to be getting worse, right? We find ourselves living in a culture that is negative, it's caustic, it's bitter, it's hostile, it's depressed, it's despairing, and becoming more and more polarized and divisive. There's a pall of darkness that hangs over our enlightened heads, we seem to be on the backside or the downside of human history, progressively eliminating the once precious things that we hope for, for a better world. I like the way that John MacArthur said it. He said, I suppose it would be safe to say that we're, we've almost exhausted all of our options. We thought that when we were supremely educated, we'd be able to solve our problems. We thought that when we were sufficiently industrialized and invented enough creature comforts that we'd be able to make life pleasant and pleasing and meaningful. We thought that when we became adept at the physical sciences, psychology, sociology, and even economics, that we'd be able to bring to bear upon our culture all the genius of the human mind and make a better world. This last week, Stephen Hawking the greatest mind of our generation, one of the greatest thinkers of all time, proposed what he sees as the only solution. And one of those bad news reports said this, renowned astrophysicist Stephen Hawking has been extremely vocal in recent months about his feelings that humanity needs to get off of Earth as soon as possible. With a troubled climate, ever-growing population, and mounting risk of apocalypse at our own hands, Hawking has taken the stance that we'll need a new place to live as soon as 100 years from now. Now the 75-year-old scientist is pushing for a return trip to our closest cosmic neighbor, the moon. Speaking via live stream this week at the Starmus Festival, Hawking claimed that now is the time to start planning moon colonies and that Mars should be the immediate successor once we've accomplished that. We are running out of space and the only place we can go is to other worlds, said Hawking. And then Hawking added, it's a time to explore other solar systems. Spreading out may be the only thing that saves us from ourselves. I am convinced that humans need to leave Earth. Hawking admits that venturing to new star systems is not possible at this time. But he says that Earth is just not big enough for humanity. It seems to me that the great minds of this world, which have not been able to solve a single major problem, war, poverty, disease, death, corruption, sin, violence, mental disorders, now have to make 
traveling greater at the speed of light a possibility, a reality? Where's the good news in that? Reminds me of the farmer who went to his banker and announced that he had good news and bad news. First, the bad news. Well, said the farmer, I can't make my mortgage payments. And that crop I've taken out for the past 10 years, I can't pay that off either. Not only that, I won't be able to pay you the couple of hundred thousand dollars that I have outstanding on my tractors and, and other equipment. So I'm going to have to give up the farm and turn it all over to you for whatever you can salvage out of it. Silence prevailed for a minute. Then the banker said, well, what's the good news? Well, the good news is I'm going to keep on banking with you. <laughs> Sounds like bad news and badder news to, to make up a word. So what is the good news? Turn once again to the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 1, this time at the first verse, page 1380. Last week we got three-fourths of the way through this verse, and uh, we discovered whose Paul is. Whose are you, Paul? Who do you belong to? Verse 1 of Romans chapter 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. For what purpose was Paul bought with the price by the Lord Jesus Christ who paid his sin debt by dying on the cross? For what purpose did, Paul, did God call Paul to be an apostle of Jesus Christ? For what purpose did God set Paul apart even while he was in his mother's womb? It was all for the gospel of God. The gospel of God. The word translated gospel is euangelion in the Greek. It literally means to declare or to herald good news. The town crier would stand in the village or the town and, and good news, proclaim good news. From euangelion, we get words like evangelist and evangelism and evangelical. Evangelists are those who what? Proclaim the good news. Remember when Jesus was born and the angels appeared to the shepherds who were out keeping their flocks by night? And as the King James Version says, they were sore, afraid, terrified. Remember what the angel said? Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you, what? Euangelion, good news of great joy which shall be for all the people. I announce good news. This is not fearful news. This is not Fox News, CNN, NBC News. This is not the wisdom of the greatest minds on the face of the earth. The angel proclaimed, I bring you good news of great joy which shall be to all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Good news. Now verses 2, 3, and 4 of Romans chapter 1 describe the good news of God. The euangelion of God. I like the way that Paul writes his letter to the Romans. Not that it's just long and 16 chapters and it's very theological and it's very good and those kind of things. But as he starts his letter, it's like he can't wait to announce the good news. He just can't wait. Why should the angels have all the fun of announcing the good news? He's got an opportunity to do it. And he's going to write 16 chapters as they're laid out in our Bibles. But in the first verse, he tells us what it's all about. The gospel of God. And then in verses 2 through 4... He lays it all out. This is the gospel of God. This is the greatest news ever told. And it's still being told today. And we need to hear it. 
And we need to tell it. That's what each one of us are called to do, right? Why should Paul and the angels have all the fun when it comes to the good news? We have good news. According to 1 Thessalonians, God entrusts us as believers. He entrusts us with believers with the gospel, with the good news. The word translated entrust there means to put on deposit as in a bank. He puts the good news on deposit in us so we can bring it out. And the really neat thing is that God was desirous to tell it before it even happened. You think the angels were excited about it? You think Paul's excited about telling us? God told it even before it happened. From God's point of view, the gospel is worth telling before. How cool is, is that? Verse 2 of Romans chapter 1, the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The gospel of God was promised beforehand through God's prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now notice three things about this in this verse, about the gospel of God. The gospel of God is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. It's not a new religion. It's the fulfillment of an old religion. Oftentimes, you know, when they do a documentary on PBS about the world's religions, those kind of things, or even one about Paul or Peter and those kind of things, they, they give you the idea that the Old Testament is one religion and the New Testament is, is another religion. That when Jesus came along and then Peter and Paul and the rest of the apostles, they started a new religion that came out of Judaism, but it was a new religion called Christianity. But Paul's going to spend much time in this letter to the Romans showing us that Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He tells us that the gospel is the fulfillment of what God promised in the Old Testament. What God was preparing and promising then, he fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. Let me just give you some examples very quickly from Scripture. God promised the gospel in prototype in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. After Adam and Eve fell and they sinned, God said that the seed of the woman would bruise the heel of the serpent. Who's the seed of the woman? The Messiah, Jesus Christ. The gospel was implicit in the Old Testament sacrificial system. Everything that had to do with the sacrificial system was to show that Christ. And I believe that it was mostly seen in Moses, but it was revealed from the outset in Cain and Abel. The wages of our sin is death. But God graciously would accept the blood sacrifice of an acceptable substitute. We see it again when God told Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. God intervened, of course, to provide the ram instead of, of Isaac. But he was showing, God was showing what he would literally do in sending his own son as the necessary offering for our sins. In Isaiah 53, God makes it plain that Jesus is the Lamb of God who was wounded for our transgressions. Then there's the record of Paul's missionary journeys in the book of Acts. It shows us that when he was speaking to the Jews, it says he reasoned with them from the scriptures, from the Old Testament, trying to show that Jesus is the promised Messiah. For example, in Acts chapter 13, after summarizing Old Testament history down to David, Paul concludes from the descendants of this man, from the descendants of David, according to the promise God brought to Israel, a Savior, Jesus. And then in Acts chapter 17, verse 2, we read with reference to Paul's visit to Thessalonica. 
And it says, according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, the Old Testament, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. You know, it's important here to see that the apostles didn't make up the gospel, or it wasn't something new that God brought to them, and they proclaimed that. They didn't start a new religion at all. The, the gospel comes to us from God's promises through his prophets as revealed in the Old Testament. The gospel of God is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, prophets, prophet, promises and prophecies. Secondly, we see in verse 2 that God keeps his promises. God keeps his, his promises. Hundreds of years go by. The Jews wonder if the Messiah will ever come. They go through horrendous suffering. Then God acts and the promise is fulfilled. This means that God can be trusted. Amen? It may look as if he has forgotten his promises, but God does not forget. Verse 2, then, is not only a statement about the content of the gospel, but it's also a, a reason for believing it. If we can see that God promised Christ centuries before he came, and somebody said in at least 350 prophecies in the Old Testament, at least that many, pertaining just to Christ, with many details he fulfilled all of these promises, then what? Our faith is strengthened about all the promises of God. And thirdly, these are holy inspired writings that we should reverence and believe. Notice the tremendously important implications of verse 2 for our, our doctrine of Scripture, what we believe about the Bible, our approach, what it should be to the Bible. First, there is God, the gospel of God. Then there are promises that God wills to make. Then there are prophets through whom, don't miss this, through whom, not by whom, through whom God himself speaks through the prophets. They are born along by the Holy Spirit, as Peter said. God himself remaining the speaker, he speaks his promises. And then there are writings. And these writings are holy. Why are they holy? Because they're set apart from all other writings. They are one of a kind and precious because it is God who speaks in them. Look at verse 2 carefully. He, God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. God promised in the Scriptures. God is speaking in the Scriptures. That is what makes them holy. This is Paul understand, under, Paul's understanding of the Scriptures, and it should be ours. Have you ever wondered why it says, either on the front of your Bible or the back of the spine, it says, Holy Bible? Holy Bible? What, what makes it holy? The answer to that is in the verse 2 here that we're looking at unless we miss the relevance of this for our exposition of Romans and how we approach Romans, I want you to remember three things. Three things as to why these are holy scriptures. First of all, Paul sees himself in chapter 1, verse 1, he's an apostle. He's called as an apostle of Jesus Christ. In other words, he's speaking and writing with the authority of Christ's behalf as a founder of the church. In other words, just like the prophets of old, as it says in Ephesians, just like the prophets of old, Paul is writing. 
And secondly, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13, he said, Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. In other words, Paul claims a special inspiration of the Holy Spirit for his writing. Namely, Paul didn't get the good news from any human source. It didn't come from human wisdom. It didn't come because God gave him the ability to think it up because God wanted it. He got it from God. It was taught by the Spirit of God. And thirdly, the letter to the Romans is Holy Scripture because in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, the Apostle Peter says that some people distort Paul's writings as they do the other scriptures. The apostles testified that the writings of the apostles, the other writings of the other apostles, were also Holy Scripture. So Peter puts Paul's letters in the same category as the Holy Scriptures of the Old Testament. You know, this is why preaching is so serious in our life together here at, at Grace Baptist Church. We believe that Paul's letters to the Romans is the word of God. Brought from God, spoken through Paul to us. It's not merely the words of men. It's not merely words about God that, that might make sense or, or good things. The gospel was promised in holy writing, inspired by God, and the gospel is unfolded and preserved for us in holy writings of God. This is what we believe. And it makes a huge difference in the way we view truth and doctrine, in preaching and worship and evangelism and outreach and, and everything else in the world. So the first thing as we pull this part together first thing Paul says about the gospel of God, that it was planned and predicted long ago, it was promised beforehand, and we see the fulfillment in the gospel of God. The second thing he says about the gospel of God is that it centers in the person of God's Son. Verse 3 of Romans chapter 1. The gospel of God concerning his Son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, and was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the center of the good news. He is the good news, the person of the good news. And one thing that's really important, when, when you share the good news, when you proclaim the good news with somebody, and we're all called to share the good news, right? And this is a basic principle, is that when you give somebody the gospel, you keep bringing the discussion back to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. People that you share Christ with are great deflectors. Well, I was a Baptist once, or I tried that once, you know, and they're, what they're trying to do is just keep you off track. Just keep bringing it back to Jesus, his person, who Jesus is, what he did, his work. He died on the cross for us, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? That's the crucial question. Who is Jesus? If Jesus is who he claimed to be and who the scriptures present him to be, then he is Lord of all and we must bow 
before him. And so in succinct form in verses 3 and 4, Paul tells us three things about Jesus Christ. He tells us he is God's eternal son. He was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. And he is now resurrected from the dead and exalted to the place of power and glory. In very succinct form, this is the gospel of God. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. So let's take these one at a time. First of all, this is the gospel. God's son existed before he was born. Before he was born of Mary, before he came in the flesh, God's son, the son of God, existed from all eternity. Paul writes in verse 3, concerning God's son. It's about the son of God. In Romans chapter 8, verse 3, Paul says that God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. So Jesus was God's son eternally before he was born of the Virgin Mary. He shared the glory of the Father before the world existed, according to John chapter 17, verse 5. Go back in eternity past, as far as you can go. Did you ever do that as a kid? Maybe you still do it. You lay at bed at night, and I'm going to think as far back in the past as I can go. And you go back, and you go back. I think I'll think in the future. And, and uh, then you fall asleep, and you never get to eternity past or eternity future. But there, before all, anything, and there was always the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Son shared the glory of the Father before the world existed. And Jesus often spoke of the Father sending him into this world. I think it's like seven or eight times in the Gospel of John. The Father sent me. And so like a lot of people think, Jesus was not just an ordinary normal man who became the Son of God. A lot of people teach that he became the Son of God when the Holy Spirit descended upon him at his baptism, or that uh, Jesus was adopted as his son. He's just a man who was adopted as his son. Rather, Jesus is the eternal son of God sent by the Father who took on human flesh at the incarnation and who has returned to the right hand of the Father where he makes intercession for us, awaiting the day of his glorious coming. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Any teaching that denies either his deity, that he's not fully God, or denies his full humanity is heresy. And heresy does not save. And heresy is, is bad news. Jesus is God's unique son, the second person of the Trinity. So when the New Testament writers refer to Jesus as God's son, they are affirming his, his deity. Martin Lloyd-Jones makes the point that contrasts Christianity with, with other religions. And he said basically that you can have the teachings of Buddhism without the person of Buddha. Buddha doesn't have to be here in order to follow the teachings of Buddha. He's really not essential to that religion anymore. The same can be said of all the world's religions except Christianity. You can have the teachings of Islam without Muhammad actually, you know, whatever you want to do with Muhammad. And uh, so he says, Christianity is not just the teachings of Jesus, rather Christianity is Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ. You can't just take his teachings and then set him aside. Oh, he's a good teacher, he's this or that, and do that. To be a Christian is to embrace and believe in the person of God's Son, Jesus Christ. 
And any view that demotes him from being God's eternal son in the second person of the Trinity is not biblical Christianity. So first of all, God's son existed before he was born. And secondly, God's son was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. Verse 3 of Romans chapter 1. God's son concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. This links back, links back to verse 2 showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. God promised David, King David, that one of his descendants would sit on David's throne forever. This was God's promise to David. And we see that reiterated when King Solomon took, Solomon took the throne. It says in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, God says to Solomon, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up from your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Israel's promise made to them over and over, their promised Messiah and Savior, their Christ, was going to be born of the seed of David. And there were 14 generations in that, for that to take place. Did you ever wonder about this? Abraham Lincoln has no living descendants today. Did you know that? There's lots of people who have lived and been born in this world. For God to make a promise to say, there's going to be 14 generations, and then one of your descendants is going to live on the forever throne. And in 600 AD, thereabouts, 586, when they were taken into captivity of Israel, nobody sat on the throne of David for that time and until Jesus came. The New Testament writers affirm clearly that Jesus was born in the lineage of David. From Mary, his mother, she's a descendant of David. And then Joseph, who was his legally adoptive stepfather, just to make sure that God knows that we get it, Joseph was a descendant of David. And there at the very end of the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, the Lord Jesus testifies to John. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Thus, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, the son of David, who fulfills God's promises to Israel. This means that Jesus is not only fully God, but he is fully human. He shares in our human nature, except for our sinfulness. Why is that important that Jesus shares our human nature? Because Jesus could bear the penalty for our sins. Because he had no sins of his own. Hebrews tells us that he could be the perfect high priest who offered himself for human sins. He can sympathize with our weaknesses, which encourage us to come to him when we are tired, we're we're tempted, we're tried. That Jesus was not just some kind of spirit being or angelic being who seemed to be a man. He was a real man born physically of Mary, of the lineage of David, according to the flesh. And there's one more essential thing that this means right here as the Messiah of God, the descendant of David. This means that Jesus is coming again. Is that good news? <laughs> He's coming again to reign in power and glory from David's throne. 
We don't look to human wisdom. We don't look to the stars and the planets to, to solve our problems or to escape or, or survive this earth. Jesus is coming again. And we could look at several examples, but turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 4 through 18. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning at the 14th verse. Page 1444 in the Bibles in the rack. Beginning at verse 14 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. That means those who have passed away but were in Christ. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not proceed those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with this good news, with these, with these words. And that brings us to verse 4 of Romans chapter 1. This is the gospel of God, verse 4. The gospel of God who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. This verse points to a tremendous truth. It says that Jesus was declared the Son of God. The, the word translated declare there literally means to appoint. He was appointed the Son of God. And, and we spent several minutes this morning saying he's always been the Son of God. For eternity past, far as you can go back, eternity, he's always been the Son of God. What does it mean when he's appointed the Son of God? And, and a lot of people say, well, it's like he took somebody out of the crowd and appointed him, then he became the Son of God. It doesn't mean that at all because we, we've just been spending several minutes saying that that's not true. The key phrase is he was appointed the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. This does not mean that Jesus became God's son because of his resurrection. Oh, he made it out of the grave. I'll, I'll make him my son. But as he has shown to be the son of God, by his resurrection, so he's shown to be what he was all the time. But rather what it is showing here, that Jesus was elevated to a new level of power as the Son of God through his resurrection. By virtue of his resurrection, he's been appointed to a new level of power. By way of the power of the resurrection from the dead, Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father where he took his place as King of kings and Lord of lords with power. That at the name of Jesus, what? Every knee shall bow of those who are in heaven and earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, fourth point, last point, God's Son is Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is Lord. In other words, in view of the resurrection, Jesus went from being the eternal Son as the Messiah to being the eternal Son as Messiah and powerful 
reigning Lord. I like the way that uh, William Barclay puts this for our application. He says, it is now plain to see what a man ought to mean when he calls Jesus Lord, or when he speaks of the Lord Jesus or the Lord Jesus Christ. When I call Jesus Lord, I ought to mean that he is the absolute and undisputed owner and possessor of my life, and that he is the master whose servant and slave I must be all life long. When I call Jesus Lord, it ought to mean that I think of him as the head of that great family in heaven and earth of which God is the Father and which I, through him, have become a member. When I call Jesus Lord, it ought to mean that I think of him as the help of the helpless and the guardian of those who have no other to protect them. When I call Jesus Lord, it ought to mean that I look on him as having absolute authority over all my life, all my thoughts, all my actions. When I call Jesus Lord, it ought to mean that he is the king and emperor to whom I owe and give my constant homage, allegiance, and loyalty. When I call Jesus Lord, it ought to mean that for me, he is the divine one I must trust forever and worship and adore. Instead of a closing prayer today, let's sing together, He is Lord. He is Lord, He is Lord. He is risen from the grave and He is Lord. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Lord, He is Lord. He is risen from the dead, and He is Lord. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen.